Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, I'm so pleased that we've been able to get Chief uh, Terry Paul of uh, the CEO of Member2 on our podcast. This is something that we've been both interested in having for some time. And uh, it was an inspiring um, conversation that we had with uh, uh, an Indigenous leader who started life as a residential school um, survivor and was most recently, um, you know, uh, became one of the most respected uh, CEOs in the country. That's quite a that's quite a journey in itself and a story all by itself. But one of the most important things uh, that I think that member two uh, brings to um, the podcast is the success it's had in in becoming more and more self uh, sustaining uh, through its economic development activities. And in fact, uh, I often have used member two, member two in the presentations I've, I've done as a, a role model for other Indigenous uh, communities about how to go uh, about, uh, you know, taking things into their own hands and being successful. Yeah, I think the backstory is very, very interesting. He, he goes to Boston and he tells us that a lot of uh, Indigenous people did that in those days to find opportunity they felt they had to go to the u.s and he came back to canada and said i'm going to set up an environment where 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 my people do not have to leave the community and that's exactly what he's done over 40 years very very impressive he tells us they generated about 40 million in revenue uh, in 2023 and just to put that into perspective that works out to be about forty thousand dollars per resident Actually, I think he said eighty million. If I'm not mistaken, sorry, yeah, eighty million. Right, I, I get, I'm doing the math wrong, but if you take eighty million over the number yep. of residents, it's about forty thousand yeah. residents. So, impressive. yeah, no, it's spectacular. Um, and uh, you know, they've also over in the last ten years, they've uh, invested almost a hundred million dollars in capital into their community as a result of their successful economic development activities. So, you know, he he mentioned that. Uh, they're building houses as a result uh, at a number that they hadn't been able to do before. And, um, you know, obviously uh, the member two model is all about uh, bringing money back to the community to look at housing and education and cultural activities to strengthen their community. And they've obviously had very uh, great success in that. And one other thing that really struck me, and I, I, you know, I believe that this is an important point. There was a time when Member 2 was a off-limits place for the non-Indigenous community. Don't go anywhere near there because it's dangerous. You know, and over the course of his tenure as chief of the Member 2 First Nations, that's completely changed. Now that community, I don't want to use the word integrated, but it's certainly intertwined with the Cape Breton uh, municipality in such a way that you know, there's a lot of crossover between the communities. I, I can't think of a better way to break down the stereotypes and the misgivings and misunderstandings that non-Indigenous people have of the Indigenous community. That is that is a model as well that we should not forget about because until we break down those stereotypes, uh, you know, we're going to continue to have this sort of conflict between the, the two the two. Uh, uh, Entities, so I give them a lot of credit for completely changing that dynamic in the Cape Breton area, and I think it's it, you know that that is probably part of their success and uh, where they are today. Absolutely, he talks specifically about the great relationship he has with the current mayor of CBRM. So I think that that strengthening relationship, as you say, the inter inter uh, relationships, the interdependence between the economies there, is strengthening both, and I think it's a good story to tell. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the other the other thing that I'm really, uh, you know, we talked about was the big deal they made to, to buy into Clearwater, you know, the uh, Mi'kmaq coalition, which member two is one of seven communities involved, are 50 percent owner in Clearwater. Um, you know, that's one part of it. But they're also actively expanding their fit, their, their what I would call the inshore fishery. Uh, by buying up licenses and expanding, uh, you know, the regular uh, uh, lobster and crab fishing uh, side of the business. That, you know, that's number one. Number two, and this is maybe a surprise for a lot of people, they are the majority owner of two wind farms that are being 
built to support Everwin, who we've had on this podcast to produce uh, green hydrogen, uh, you know, and that's going to be another big uh, economic play uh, that, uh, you know, just just shows you um, how they think uh, about their future. Yeah, I mean, Chief Terry is obviously very entrepreneurial. It's a different (laughs) kind of entrepreneur because the cash flows back into the community. But he told us that they they was they they were having a hard time buying boats. So what did they do? They went out and started out a boat building company uh, yeah. because there was a back backlog of boats. So yeah, very entrepreneurial, getting involved heavily into green energy. I think our listeners are going to appreciate this conversation. And and, and I I do hope that uh, you know I'm, I'm I know this story is well known in other indigenous communities, uh, but I hope that you know, I hope this story helps those communities see what's possible. Uh, by taking more control of your of your own destiny, which they have done, and uh, and it, it was really a great pre- pleasure to have Chief uh, Terry on on the podcast. So, with that introduction, here's our very interesting conversation with Chief Terry Paul. We are pleased to be joined on the Insights Podcast by um, Chief Terry Paul, uh, who is the CEO uh, of uh, Member Two First Nation. Chief Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Before we start talking about Member Two and economic development, uh, we'd like to talk to you a little bit about yourself and find about your background. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your story? You went from a survivor of residential schools to being named one of Canada's most admired CEOs. So certainly an impressive journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah. Uh, yes. And, th- and first of all, thank you. It's a pleasure to be sitting down with you today. And uh, the course of my life is certainly one that couldn't have been predicted you know, from, I guess, my my humble beginnings, uh, uh, very, very poor. I, but I've always believed in the purpose of uh, having a dream or, or a vision or a goal, you know. And so with that, it was very difficult to chart a path where one didn't exist. And going back and remembering as far back as... Uh, as as a five year old little boy, you know, I I uh, I attended a residential school. If you want to say it that way, you know, uh, it was more of a, a forced move. You know, and and I, I don't really like calling it a residential school because I you know I I often refer to them more accurately as uh, experimental camps. So uh, my memories from that time are incredibly difficult. And the little bit that the Canadian public knows about what took place at these facilities is only scratching the surface of the the hardship and uh, the maltreatment and a lot of very unacceptable behavior that took place there. Yeah, you know, and it was always important to me uh, as a result of my experience at uh, the residential school that it didn't, uh, I didn't want to let it uh, define the outcome of uh, my life uh, going forward. And in fact, it's been very important to me throughout the years that those who came behind me didn't have that same experience either. So we made strides in Member 2 to ensure cultural sharing, language, and education, where we made that a priority for our people. We built a school in our community where our children could be safe to grow up and be who they want to be, and something I'm very proud of. And as a young man coming from a community that was filled with wonderful people, but it was an impoverished community, as I said. I grew up in poverty. I need. I knew I needed to secure work. So what I did is I traveled to Boston, like uh, like pretty well everyone else uh, in Mi'kmaq country. That uh, you know, 
everybody else went to Toronto. We went to Boston. Uh, why? I don't know. This is what we've done since time immemorial. We, we went to the Boston states, as we called them, uh, to, uh, to help make a living. So I finally, I eventually took a role with the Boston Indian Council, and it was there that I was able to see how tribes in the region were organizing, organizing themselves. And I thought that I could take some of those ideas and bring them back to member two. You know, so in 1984, I was fortunate enough to be elected chief in, in my early 30s, and I haven't looked back since. So with the support of the community, I've done my best to wake, wake up every day with uh, one goal, and that's to move, uh, move member two forward. So over the past 40 years, member two, as people can see, has grown economically, socially, and I say the best part is to see our young people have access to what I call endless opportunities that that we never had when I was growing up. So that's a bit about uh, about me. So this year, that means if you were elected in 1984, that means you've been in leadership with Member Two for 40 years. Congratulations! Well, thank you. Um, we'd like you to give us a insight into what's the secret of your longevity and success. Well. You know, 40 years, like, uh, gee, wow. I said, where did it go? Gee, it goes quickly, you know, especially when you, you, you start getting old. Uh, I haven't reached that yet, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you start to get that feeling, you know. So, but when you're working day to day, you know, on their goals, you know, sometimes you look up and look around and realize that so much time has passed. You know, I think my secret at how has always been to keep the why of what we do at the forefront of our decision making, and that's and that's the people I've member to will always be the driving force behind our success. I also certainly have an incredible people that that work around me and have worked for me for many years. Let's let's start with the member two band council. Many of our council members have been me, have been with me along the ride over the over the years. You know, very long-term serving councillors, very committed. So, I believe that strong and consistent leadership around around the table has been invaluable to our growth. It's a shared vision vision that supports lifting an entire community of people from an improvised place to one of success. It's a difficult job, but what we have been, would have been more difficult to us, and I firmly believe that, is that, that if we just stayed down and stayed small, you know, I think that would be the biggest hardship uh, Chief Terry, there's little doubt that Member 2 is considered to be a model for success in terms of economic development for other Indigenous communities in Canada. In fact, uh, you know, I've done hundreds of presentations. I quite often refer to Member 2 as an example of uh, success. Uh, you've developed what is called the Member 2 model for economic development, and I'd like you to describe that model for us in some detail, if you could. Sure. Uh... Uh, it's a model that we're very proud of, and it's one that has uh, worked for us, really. Uh, you know, the Member 2 model ref refers to how we lifted our community's economic position through development, business development. So, for example, all of the commercial businesses that we have, along with our partnerships and ownership in companies across the province, the revenue generated through these activities come back to member two to directly support our community initiatives, as I mentioned before, like housing, education, social, youth programming, and beyond that. Early in my 
chief life, it's become clear that we'd only be funded for one home a year and that we'd have to do a lottery to determine which youth would get funded to go to post-secondary. It's a really difficult situation to be in, you know. And you end up having a lot of people not not happy with you, you know, which uh, which is not good. And uh, I think I think all youth, all all students, no matter what color, deserve deserve an education. You know, it's uh, it's like the rising tide. Let everybody rise with it. But in bolstering our own source revenues. We now build an average of 20 homes annually, uh, and every single person in member two who wants to go to post-secondary education or training is funded to do so. So in doing this, we've seen how that, that can remove barriers for community members, and in turn, they succeed to the rising tide come up with it. So any business or project that we're involved in, the revenues directly support our people in, in member two. Well, let's just talk about your community for uh, a moment. I would like to understand, you know, um, how many people live in your community? What, and, 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 and what's the population? What's going on with the population? Uh, well, it's certainly moving up. You know, uh, like a lot of other indigenous communities across the country, you know, we're uh, we're we're trying, we're trying to help uh, populate the country. <laughs> you know, so, uh, in member two, we have approximately eighteen, but eighteen hundred and fifty band members that are both living and living outside the community. And, 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 and to put that in context, uh, Chief, uh, how many Indigenous uh, members are there in Nova Scotia right now? Do you have that number? Uh, it's over 20,000. Okay. I don't know the, exact, the number exactly, but it's over 20,000. I know that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, um, again, the business model for Member 2. Can you give us a sense of what your annual revenues are? Uh, this past year, I yeah, yeah the, the re total revenues for member two was about a little over eighty million, and uh, it was a it's a record year for us for sure. So we have about uh, six hundred people working for us in member two, but that doesn't uh, include uh, the fishery, like the Clearwater fishery for sure. It doesn't include the tenants that we have leasing space from us, working for other various organizations within the community. Our focus is uh, is always to hire our, our community members. In fact, we have a process through our HR department that ensures that community members get interviewed for every role if they apply. It, provides an opportunity, we believe, um, both for them to get the job, and if they don't, it also, it also exposes to them to the process of employment through improving their interview skills. You know, it's an important part of that. So our working split is about 60% community members and 40% non-community members working for member two, but really, really, I mean, this is important. But for me, the most important thing we look for in an employee is someone who shares our vision. There are many people who work with us who aren't from member two, but they see our vision and want to work with us to achieve it. I feel really proud about that. So, what's the uh, what's the workforce situation? Is is, is it does, do most people have employment? Uh, most of the, the members. I, I I can I can assure you that if uh, someone in member two wants a job, they could get it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you generate revenue? Like, what are the sources of revenue? Is is it is it profits from the from the projects? Is it do you do you generate other sources of revenue? How do you how did you what are the general sources of revenue of that that eighty million? Well, some some of our our largest revenue generators are uh, um, gaming. Um, and we most certainly wanted to diversify from that, you know, to uh, uh, fisheries is uh, one of the larger ones too, and our uh, commercial real estate. And uh, we're uh, doing very well there and uh, we're, we're growing, uh, growing very well in the, uh, in the uh, real estate file. Uh, one of the things that's uh, really impressive about uh, your community is that you've been able to generate significant surpluses in recent years, and you've uh, you know accumulated a surplus of I think uh, about eighty million dollars in reserve. Obviously, this gives you capacity to invest in further in economic development activities. Uh, can you talk us through the process of how you decide? what you're going to invest in next in your community? What are the criteria that you're looking for? Well, we have uh, several priority streams that we tend to focus on and have proven successful for us. Uh, the first one being uh, commercial real estate. We're currently developing a new retail district called the Seventh Exchange, which will be an inclusive and convenient retail area across the highway from member two with um, commercial space, retail, food, food and beverage, grocers, and so on. In uh, the other area is uh, fisheries. And has there's, as you know, we've talked about there's a large investment area for us both in our commercial inshore fishery and our ownership stake in Clearwater Seafoods. So there we are continuing to make investments to, to, to grow these areas. A new area for us in terms of partnership and investment has been the green energy sector, as we call it. For many years, the Mi'kmaq were not included in big, big industry, as I said before. Today, we're majority owners in two proposed wind farms on land in Nova Scotia in partnership with Everwind Fuels. So in terms of how we decide, we have a solid team who look at new opportunities. And if it makes sense, or if it fits within our existing portfolios, we're often keen to take it on. We're always looking at new projects and keep things exciting for us. The federal government has mandated the involvement of the Indigenous communities in the development of natural resources in Canada. I wanted to ask you, what are the best opportunities for Member 2 in terms of the development of natural resources in your area of Nova Scotia? Well, right off the bat, for sure, green energy and the other areas are, are, are on, in the water, on the water, and on the lands. So I feel uh, there's uh, areas. Uh, we, we recently had uh, Peter Nicholson on. I don't know if you saw that report, Chief, but uh, he did a report for the Public Policy Forum. It was called Catching the Wind, which he talked about the offshore wind opportunities, which have been talked about in the Cancel area uh, or, or the Cancel Strait area for some time. Have you have you been involved at all with looking at the offshore wind opportunity as well? We're, we're very aware of the offshore wind opportunity, and we're uh, yes, we're very involved uh, uh, right now uh, with our existing partner in Everwind, which uh, has uh, every intention to uh, whenever the regulations come out to. Uh, participate in the, uh, the, uh, the offshore uh, wind uh, opportunity. One of the early assets that you invested in was a trade and convention center. 
that initially opened in 2004. Can you tell us what the impact of that center has been on the community? Yes, the, uh, the Member 2 Trade and Convention Center, the MTCC, it, it continues to be such an important part of our community. Uh, it, what I mean by our community is like not, not only Member 2, but Cape Breton wide and beyond that. Like, you know, it's like uh, it's certainly a crown jewel for us here in Member 2, but uh, a lot of people uh from the outside, particularly in all the Cape Breton area, think it's, it's the jewel for all of Cape Breton. So I feel very proud of that, you know, because it serves as a flagship building for us. You know, then, then over the last 20 years, we've hosted so many events from concerts to conferences and many weddings and and other events that are important to the people here, you know, and we we uh, we try to accommodate that need or accommodate that interest in what people have, like you know, and uh, we are part of the community, so uh, you know, it's uh, it m makes it a bit better for us and it makes it easier for us too because uh, we know the we we know the players and we we know the people that uh, utilize uh, this. It's an amazing place. You know, I, I feel the greatest impact, you know, aside from the revenues uh, fiscally, has been that the Trade Center welcomes people to member to, you know, like almost like a destination. And it's been a real driver in getting people into our community to learn and further work with us. There's a, there's been significant investment in your community um, over the last ten or fifteen years or so, including the sports and wellness center uh, and member two place in 2021. Do you have a, a a sense for our listeners of how much capital has been invested uh, in your community in in the past decade? Yes, uh, you know when we looked at the numbers, like you know, and, and it's absolutely grown. But I, at 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 this point right now, with the question. Uh, we've made significant investments in the last decade across across various sectors. I say to the tune of approximately uh, ninety-one million dollars. Uh, you mentioned earlier your newest venture, which is a retail complex called Seven Exchange on Highway One Twenty Five at Exit Seven A, I believe. Can you give us a little bit more detail about that uh, new latest inv uh, investment in terms of the size of the facility, perhaps, and how much it's going to cost to uh, to get it built? Well, yeah, the Seventh Exchange is one of our latest developments, and it's one that we feel will welcome people from across the Cape Breton Regional Municipality and Cape Breton itself to what we're calling a retail district. And it will have various locations of retailers, food service, convenience-based businesses, grocers, uh, ho hotels, and commercial real estate space. And within that, like we, we, we again, like as part of our attempt to have our community member to as a destination for people, so we plan to infuse elements of our culture, the Mi'kmaq culture, through art and signage, educational panels, and cultural displays. We, we really wanted more than just a drive-in, drive-out retail area. No, we want to create a space that welcomes everyone and is walkable and is safe for all of its services. So in the next three to five years, we'll be, we will be developing that. We're finally finalizing phase one of the development and moving into phase two, which will see some progression on member two building new commercial space for retailers. We're excited about this district and have had positive experiences working with new partners. 
and we we don't have an overall dollar amount of like what uh, you know it, 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 we have a, n- a number of uh, projects that we would like to do, but because of the workforce, and it, this is a problem in all the area, like uh, we have to kind of like pace our development there. But uh, right now there's a five-story office building going up uh, in, in there, and uh, it's uh, uh, pretty well 100% booked already. Oh. And uh, we're putting a new hotel there uh, this summer. Uh, they're breaking ground this summer. There's room for a couple of hotels, but our partner is uh, going to be starting with one there. And, of course, we have uh, a number of uh, businesses there already. And there's uh, quite a few that are that we are having discussions with and are very interested in moving to our uh, retail district. This is, this sounds like a major under undertaking, obviously. Um, uh, so that's going to take uh, the next number of years to develop, obviously, as well. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I want to just talk about this for, for a second, uh, that housing has been a challenge uh, in your community as elsewhere, right across the country at the moment. But um, what is the situation within Member 2 regarding the availability of affordable housing? Well, I I certainly agree with what you said, you know, that housing is an issue right across the country. Uh, But for Indigenous communities, housing has always been an issue. You know, as as I mentioned earlier, we try to build around 20 homes annually, and that typically one— home would be funded through indigenous services, you know, and subsidized really. So, but this year, just we're, we're so proud that Member 2 was the recipient of uh, this program called uh, the Rapid Housing Initiative with the federal government. So through that program, we will be building 35 new homes through the rapid housing program this year. And uh, we need to move all of them in. They have to be moved in by the summer. So uh, we have to so get to that. What is the gap between supply and demand for housing right now, Chief? You know? Yeah, we have a waiting list of over 200 people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Chief, can you explain to our listeners the housing model in the community? Who, who owns the housing? And can you describe that to us? Yeah. Like, you know, geez, I'd gladly do that. Like, because of, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about housing. And obviously a lot of shortages around the country in our, in our communities, uh, you know, indigenous communities. So housing is set up through the band, the band council. The community oversees the homes and it works almost in uh, like a rent to own model. People pay for their houses. And each community member that wants housing has to get into our house community housing list and it's based on the needs of the people, you know, and there is a lot of needs, but various degrees of needs. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it sometimes makes for difficult choices, but we make the best choices we can, you know, and it's, uh, and I feel that uh, how we do it is, uh, I think is fair to everybody because we base it on, on the needs and the family size and, and other factors. So this is how we allocate uh, our houses that are controlled by the band. There's a number of people, a good number of people that get their own mortgages from various lending institutions. And it's uh, by their relationship with the uh, financial institution, there's uh, quite a number of people that you know, mortgage their own homes here in Member 2. So 
the more homes we can build, the more secure housing we can provide for our people. So now after the life of the mortgage is paid off by the band and by the, by the community member, the home then becomes theirs. And upon the owner of a home passing away, for example, in here, here in memory to the home is typically passed down to a, to a family member and so on. So I think there are misconceptions that government pays for every home built, but that isn't true. They help build on some, maybe one a year, you know, and uh, but the homeowner still pays a fee, a rental fee or a mortgage fee. So, but our ability to build new homes in, in neighborhoods is really directly linked to our economic su success in most cases. Right, okay. Um, the next question I wanted to ask you was about your partnership or your relationship with CBRM. CBRM is the second largest municipality in Nova Scotia with over 100,000 population. Of course, you're, you're adjacent to, uh, to that community. How would you describe the working relationship with that community and other communities in your area? Is it, is it, is it good? So, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Like, uh, you know, our relations with the uh, CBRM, the Cape Breton Regional Municipality, and the surrounding area has greatly improved, even just in my time as chief and member too. And when I was growing up, people from the city wouldn't pass the threshold of our community, you know. It was, it was considered unsafe or taboo to do so, you know. It's, uh, you say, who lives up that way? Oh, oh, just a bunch of Indians. Oh, geez, stay away from there. Like, you know, no real reason other than being who we are, you know. But, uh, you know, it was a pretty sad situation. But like today, gee, the boundaries are very blurred. I, I would say that. You know, we've expanded our land holdings. Uh, we, have, we own a lot of fee simple land. And with the services we offer, many people from across the city are now working at a, at a, at a location in Member 2. It's been great to see this positive change we have great working relationships with the CBRM mayor and work together in many capacities. And uh, she's, uh, she's very open to uh, meet uh, with the chief and council of member two. And uh, we, we've, we, we have had a number of them. Uh, we have, uh, we, we, did, we discuss a number of issues and uh, that's very important. At least we're able to discuss the issues and work on them. You know, there are a number of them, there are ways to go, but uh, at least we are addressing them and we're working on resolving those issues. Um, in 2020, the Mi'kmaq Coalition, led by Member 2, in partnership with Premium Brands of BC, uh, purchased Clearwater Seafoods for $1 billion. It's a 50-50 um, partnership between premium brands and the coalition. Uh, most people don't understand the, what the coalition is about, Chief Terry. And uh, I wonder if you could maybe explain um, uh, the coalition and the ongoing role that uh, you yourself and member two have in the ownership of Clearwater. Well, to start, to start, like uh, for many years, um, having access to the offshore fishery and a company like Clearwater, like I said before, it, it just felt like a dream. But today, as we know, it's a, it's real. It's a reality. You know, and to me, like this acquisition was a landmark deal in so many in so many ways. Namely, that it proves the value that indigenous groups have within the business world, the fishery sector and beyond. Our partnership with premium brands is wonderful. We feel that they share the same values that we do 
And since acquisition, we've made huge strides in indigenizing Clearwater. It's now an indigenous owned company and the staff have been amazing at adapting our values. Every time we meet with our partner, Premium Brands, we learn something. They're very, very astute business people. And I'm so glad that they're the people that are our partners because we know that we have a tremendous chance of growing because of their leadership and their expertise. But like, you know, like all our other investments, this will impact our community's ability to provide more services for our people and to reinvest in other economic opportunities. And I feel from talking to the other communities that they have the same vision and they have the same idea. That's why they're part of that, you know, and uh, I know that we're, because of our ownership in this company, all the, all the coalition members will be benefiting greatly over the years. Uh, can you perhaps give us some direct impacts of that purchase for your own community? Can you give us uh, maybe just a, an example or two of how it's benefited your community directly? Well, being, being uh, one of the owners directly, uh, being on the board uh, to help make, uh, make the major decisions. Uh, we've gained employment uh, in member two through the fishery, both at, uh, well, all, all really at the office level, the, uh, the, the processing level, uh, fishing, harvesting out in the sea. Uh, there are a number of people that go out, our people, and, there's, and it's gaining more and more as we, as we, as we go along. And of course, uh, uh, as we as we pay down the debt, uh, our ownership becomes more and more, and it's gotten to such a point where now uh, we're able to get uh, revenues uh, st starting January first to uh, to all the coalition communities uh, as of uh, as a result of uh, the growth of the company. Mm. Clearly, I, I believe. Uh, just recently released its latest annual results, if I'm not mistaken. How is the company doing under the new ownership? Well, Clearwater has been doing extremely well since we've taken ownership. But I really, I credit that to our amazing team at Clearwater. There's, uh, there's uh, about seven major uh, directors, uh, in the company, within the management, I, I even call them the Magnificent Seven, you know, uh, <laughs> because of uh, what what they've been able to do. And of course, I have to mention uh, Ian Smith, uh, Clearwater C CEO. You know, I, I've got to know him really well, and I feel that he's one of the most um, thoughtful and efficient leaders so we're lucky to have a strong team working for us every day. Just uh, maybe one, a couple more questions on this, this important uh, project. Can you tell us a little bit about the story and about how this purchase came about? Like, how, how did you come across the idea uh, and then sort of get everybody together and say, hey, let, let's, let's buy this? Was that, did premium come to you or John? We understand John, John Risley was heavily engaged in trying to get the indigenous communities involved. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, uh, like I said before, like I've, I've had a long standing relationship with uh, John and Colin. And uh, Colin's brother, Mickey, was, was, was a very important part of uh, the, uh, the owners here. Uh, he, he owned the majority of the shares, but he, uh, he allowed Colin to work for for them, the brothers. So I, I dealt mostly with Colin 
and John for for many years. And I've always watched them from kind of like from afar as they built that company. You know, started them selling uh, fish and lobster in the back of a truck. Hmm. That's how the company started. And the level at which they were able to grow and succeed within the industry is truly amazing to me, you know, and I admired that. But also their attention to uh, the science of the fishery and the commitment um, to sustainability. I mean, that's what really clicked our minds and that, that uh, we're, we're at the same level here. You know, and of course, their uh, their community generosity is, uh, you know, is it, it really um, it really hit me like hard, like you know, it's just I couldn't believe like uh, how generous uh, they are, you know, and uh, uh, it certainly helped a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the communities and uh, the foundations and. Uh, in the hospitals, you know, uh, that they uh, donated to. And uh, I feel very proud of that. And uh, and that shows that uh, they, they cared about uh, where they were and where they lived, you know, and uh, they, they, they've proven that uh, over and over again. So uh, this is what made their company very attractive. So then we heard, we heard that, you know, Again, the opportunity to buy the company was 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 coming forward. So I brought it to my team, you know, immediately and said, I said, like, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes it's uh, a real benefit when, you, when you're not naive. You don't know when to be afraid. Like, you know, <laughs> I told them, we're going to buy Clearwater. <laughs> I think that in my team, the way the reaction was that uh, I think maybe they thought I was losing it at the time. <laughs> but, you know, we got to work right away and, and made it happen. And the best part being that we were able to have seven Mi'kmaq communities included in the deal, which means six other communities also benefit from the partnership. Yeah, it's a fantastic story, Chief. Can you tell us about the partnership with Premium Brands? They're, they're of course, a big player in many different industries. Have they been good to work with so far? Uh, it, it's worked wonderfully right from the outset. You know, George, the CEO of Premium Brands, and his team, like I said, have immense ex expertise. And we've learned so much from them. We share similar values. And that is really, really important to me in uh, in having a business relationship. Beyond uh, Clearwater, member two is uh, very active in the fishery. Uh, can you tell us about the growing importance of the fishery to your community? Yes. Um, the fishery has, has always held an important place for us. You know, uh, I, I I know from the past that, uh, you know, 90% of our activity was in the water. You know, it's in the, mostly in fish, fisheries. It's, uh, it's a traditional way of life for our people. And today, I feel we've carried those traditions on but in a modern way. Mm. We have nine commercial lobster licenses and two snow crab licenses, besides the Clearwater uh, ownership. And we've been acquiring vessels and licenses over the years. And just before the pandemic, we began our own boat assembling operations out of our facility in Sitport. So we now assemble about three to four fishing, fishing vessels annually, either for our own use or to sell to others. And this, 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 this came about when we learned, when we were looking at buying a new boat, when we learned that the wait list to get a new boat was about three to four years. 
we knew if we were waiting, others must be waiting too. You know, and that's a long time. So that we knew that the market was there. So that's that's become a new opportunity for us, like to turn a roadblock into an economic win for the community. We kind of like found a niche because of our needs, you know, right. and then helping others, uh, you know, resolve that need. Can you uh, just uh, clarify something for me? Uh, these licenses that you've been purchasing, these are in in the regular uh, lobster industry. It's not the mo it's not the moderate uh, livelihood fishery, is it? No, it's not. What I'm yeah. saying is, uh, it's uh, the regular lobster commercial fishery. Right. As we yeah. buy, we we buy, we we have an open offer to buy. Any lobster, inshore lobster license, uh, right? Within reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Important to point out. Within <laughs> reason, uh, and uh, we buy as much as we can over the years. So uh, whenever there's a uh, a lobster fishing willing to sell, we're we're open to uh, we're open to buying it if if the price is right. We recently had Glenn Cook on. You you know who Glenn Cook is of Cook Agriculture. Yes. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation. Uh, you know, they're the f largest privately owned uh, uh, seafood company in the world. I didn't realize that. They had, there's the revenues this year were four billion dollars. To put it in perspective, uh, do you do any uh, work with uh, Cook Agriculture, or, or if not, is there any opportunity for you to work with them? We 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 work with anybody that you know where it, where it makes sense. I, I'm 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 pretty sure that we have done some. I I'm not aware of myself personally, okay. But like over mm -hmm. here, Clearwater fishes with uh, they all they all work together and they try to work and, and help each other where 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 right. where they can in uh, various areas. Like uh, and of course, uh, I can assure you that Clearwater. Is very interested in aquaculture. Hmm. We're looking at it very seriously. Yes, big opportunity, obviously. Yes. Um, you also mentioned earlier that you're involved with as a partner with Everwind Fuels. It's another another organization we've had on this podcast, Chief uh, Terry. Uh, we're very excited by uh, green hydrogen, um, and you're involved in the development of. Uh, onshore wind farms with them to support their clean uh, hydrogen uh, production project. Can you tell us what the size of those wind farms would be and, and perhaps uh, when the project is, is expected to start and to be completed? Yeah, I can say that our, um, our partners at Everyone have been fantastic. Somewhere we're very proud to be part of the solution in the transition to green energy. We're majority owner of two onshore wind farms, Gumdanook and Bear Lake, in the, and those are in the uh, Tadamagush and uh, Windsor regions. Hmm. One project is being uh, 89 megawatts, and the other 98 megawatts for a total of 187 megawatts. So work on the EA permitting and engagement is well underway now. And we're planning to have the wind farm started by next year. The actual production of them? Yes. And, and do you have any idea what the capital cost will be to put those wind farms in place? Uh, over total, overall, I mean, the. This is our share of it. In partnering with Everwind, we're looking at constructing a total of 508 megawatts. That will probably be the largest project in Canada. And I, well, you estimate, like, you estimate about, like, it's about $2 million a megawatt. 
You're looking at. <laughs> it's a big project. Very big project. So, Chief, you've told us a lot about what you're, you're working on. It's very, very exciting in the fishery and, and retail and green energy and so on. Are there any other projects that we haven't discussed today that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, we have a major focus on green energy, you know, so clear water fisheries and seven exchange right now. But we're also looking at additional opportunities in leasing and commercial real estate. I, I cannot fully comment on <laughs> other projects that we're work, working on. Uh, so we're looking forward to continue to provide uh, new development within the region. Just one last question. We really, really appreciate you joining us today. But one last question. Can you give us a sense of what your challenges and opportunities are over the next few years? You've obviously seen a lot in 40 years, but what right, 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 what right now is keeping you up at night? Like, what are you concerned about uh, for the community and its development in the coming years? Um, it's rare that I, that I, there's things that keep me up at night. I, I feel that I sleep very well and I deserve I deserve that after a hard day's work. <laughs> oh, yeah, I really don't have that problem. But I feel that our greatest challenge always continues, continues to be ensuring that we grow. We're also growing capacity for our community along the way, ensuring that. So one of the areas we're really focused on right now is in Membertuna is the mental health and addictions issue, which is which is pretty well everywhere, you know. And it seems that the more revenues that uh, you you get, and uh, the more of uh, these drugs come in, you know, because I guess people can afford them. So we're planning right now to provide care for the people who need it most, which is another step in creating a healthy environment, a vibrant community. We want to be able to, we are doing that. We've already agreed that we're going to develop a program to help our our people that have uh, mental and addictions issues by working with them and looking after them in-house like and uh, so we're going to develop our own program and uh, and we feel that that will help address the problems that we have in our community here and uh, help the people get back to uh, a real life you know so uh, and I feel that our greatest opportunity is coming through the green energy and offshore wind so Nova Scotia and in Cape Breton in particular, they're so well positioned to be a leader in the wind and green energy sectors. And we're already working on how we can be a leader as this gets off the ground. So Chief, I guess one last question. Are you another 10 years or so? And are you going to be thinking about retirement or are you going to, what's the, what's the plan? thinking yeah and I, I was telling my people the staff there that uh, when I get old I'll, I'll think about uh, uh, that area <laughs> I don't feel old now so uh, I feel I got a few more years to uh, to uh, help uh, help with our community and in uh, the rest of the communities uh, and where we live so, Chief Terry, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. This has been an inspiring conversation, and you've provided us with a great understanding of what's going on in Member 2 and the successes you've had. We will continue to follow your progress with interest, and we wish you uh, very much success uh, as you steer the ship uh, in the years ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, T uh, Chief uh, Terry. It's been a privilege to have you on our program. 
You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.